to be is to interbe. This is the name of uh, the title of this evening's Dharma talk. And it's also a quote from the Vietnamese Zen master, late Zen master Thich Nhat Hanh. He says, to be is to interbe. You cannot just be by yourself alone. You have to interbe with every other thing, with every other thing. This term um, interbe, or I, I prefer interbeing, that's a, a term that uh, Thich Nhat Hanh came up with where he combined the prefix inter, as an in interstate or interdepartmental, with the verb to be, to make interbeing. And this is a beautiful, I think it's a beautiful word, but it's a little vague too. What does it mean to interbe with every other thing? What exactly are we talking about here? There's a lot of things, right? What are we being with in this practice? This evening, I wanna offer three different core perspectives on interbeing. I want to talk about what it's like to interbe within ourselves, to interbe with others, and to interbe with nature. And at the end of that, I want to see if we can pull these together into a kind of integrated network of interbeing, a larger perspective on what it's actually like to interbe, the complexities of interbeing. It's gonna get a little nerdy at the end, I'll just warn you. But to me, the cog cognition can be a doorway into the absolute or into wisdom, right? Of course, we don't wanna just be in our cognitive minds. This is a, a lot of my practice has been about dropping down into the heart, dropping down into the body, dropping down into the earth, learning these other registers of being. But the mind is a beautiful gateway too. And here I'll offer some of my own strengths in this respect. Yeah. So let's start with uh, interbeing within ourselves. Interbeing within ourselves. So you're going to see there's a, a beautiful visual prompt over there, a visual uh, illustration on the chalkboard there. Yes. Uh, I felt like it was necessary to kind of represent this in some way. So I'll just briefly describe the three perspectives I'm going to point to in, in this visual. So the, the outer circle, the larger circle, that's nature, or you could say that's the earth in this case, the natural environment that we're embedded within. And then the circle in the very center, the white sort of circle in the center, the big one right in the center, that is our self. That's the self. The self is in, of course, embedded within nature. And then within the self, right, you see the other little blue circles that are interconnected. Those are all the parts of the self, all the selves, the sub-selves, the aspects of self, and they're all connected. And then of course the self is itself connected to other selves, other selves here on this earth. So these three represent the three perspectives that I wanna talk about. And the first one that I wanna zoom in on is the the innermost aspect of ourselves and the interbeing within ourselves. And, and first I want to just describe what it's like when we are interbeing within ourselves from my own experience. 
when there is a kind of recognition that all of these selves are interrelated and interconnected and we start to go with that, you know, go with the flow of interbeing. In my experience, one of the main ways we can know that we are interbeing within ourselves is that we, we start to discover there's a kind of harmonization, a working together of the different aspects of self. Um, that we actually can pull all of ourself together, you know, to do something. It's like we don't have some parts of us going this direction, some parts of us going that direction. Like we can actually act in integrity with ourselves. Another way of putting this is from uh, the Zen teacher Genpo Roshi, a uh, teacher that I've studied with and appreciate, uh, from a book called Big Mind, Big Heart. And here he's describing what it's like when we're able to move between these different aspects of self, the different parts of ourselves, you know? We have all these parts of ourselves, right? There's like the, the controller, you know, the one that wants to be in control. There's the protector, it's like trying to protect everything. There's the inner child, you know, the little part of us that's still a, a, a child. There's a wounded child in us. Modern psychology has found all sorts of ways to to break apart and describe the different aspects and facets of the soul. Here he's, Genpo is describing what it's like to be able to shift between these different perspectives, these different parts of the self. Where he says, being able to shift perspectives is like having a freely functioning vehicle. If a car is stuck in any gear, what you've got is a dysfunctional car. Even if it's a Maserati, if you're stuck in first gear, or you're stuck in reverse, no matter what gear you're stuck in, it's dysfunctional. But the moment you have fluidity and movement and you're able to shift up or down or into reverse or whatever you need to do, you've got a functional vehicle. So one way we could talk about this interbeing within ourselves is when we recognize that all of these parts of us are in fact related, connected, all enclosed within this body-mind, then we can start to get a sense of that capacity to freely function, to be able to access and call upon different aspects of the self as needed, or to be able to recognize when they've arisen and to respond appropriately. The part of us that can respond freely to what's happening. In one way, this is a way to understand the ultimate goal of meditation, is to gain fluency with experience, you know, to be able to move freely based on whatever is needed. You know, what's needed? I don't know. I have to check and see what's going on to see what's needed first. And what happens when we lose touch with this uh, sense of inner being, when we forget that in fact it, it is true that all these parts are connected and related? Because um, it's not that it, it stops being true, it's just that we forget sometimes, right? Or we get contracted into some part of ourselves that doesn't see the whole, that doesn't get the big picture, because it's, say, a wounded child, you know? So what happens when we lose touch with, our, with the interbeing within ourself? Well, it, it, to me, it, it's really felt as a, a sense of stuckness, a sense of being trapped in something small, of contraction or over-identification with some part of ourselves. And when we over-identify with these parts of ourselves, we, we lose the other parts of ourselves. We lose touch 
we lose connection with ourself, right? Have you ever felt that? Like, I don't feel connected to myself. What does that mean? What parts of yourself don't you feel connected to? It can even be so bad that we disown parts of ourselves, the parts that we can't stand, that we can't tolerate, or I should more accurately say the parts of ourselves that the part we're identifying with can't stand because we become one with some part of ourselves and as that part, like, ah, I can't deal with that, I can't deal with this, the contracted or immature aspects of the ego, which are not bad, they're, they're part of us, and, and some of our parts are more grown up than others, right? More mature than others. Those parts um, you have varying levels of wisdom, <laughs> varying levels of understanding, of intelligence, or capacity, just like different people do, right? Different aspects of the self are the same. When we really lose touch with the interbeing within ourselves, I think what happens is we go to war with ourselves. We actually go into a full battle, you know, some parts against others. You know, it's like imagine the battlefield in your heart. It's like <laughs> arrows, you know, missiles, you know, whatever it takes to destroy, you know, right? Sometimes or to um, get rid of even. It feels like some parts of us that we can't stand. And really, this creates a lot of problems. This creates a lot of anger, alienation, fear, isolation, can lead to depression or anxiety when we're really, truly uh, not in accord with, with ourself. And then how do we get free? You know, how do we break free of that? Well, I mean, really, all the practices we've been doing, in some sense, are about that. You know, first we have to notice what's happening, going back to RAIN, you know, recognizing what's true. One of my favorite ways to practice, once I've, um, I know that I'm at war with myself and I can sense, oh, like, yeah, there's internal conflict. Internal conflict is like this. Then we can actually begin to practice something like heartfulness. This is my favorite, metta. In the quote that I shared in my last talk, I, I shared this quote from Sharon Zalsberg, where she says, practicing metta illuminates our inner integrity because it relieves us of the need to deny different aspects of ourselves. We can open to everything with the healing force of love. So this is a big part of the work we're doing in meditation interbeing within ourselves and traditional solo meditation is almost all about this it's about learning how to be in harmony with who you are these different aspects of who you are that arise in response to causes and conditions that are themselves evolving changing that are varied and yet integrated separate distinct and yet one So this is describing the interbeingness at this scale you know, of the self and what happens within the self. But then we can look out and, this, and see that this self is also connected with other selves. And they themselves have their own internal ecology of selves, right? It's like we're like ecosystems interacting with each other. Here we go, we have 20 ecosystems in one room. And we're here together, practicing together exploring similar things but having different experiences what is it like to interbe with others 
I think you all have hopefully had a sense of this at times here, and I know you have elsewhere. You wouldn't be here and alive <laughs> otherwise. Thich Nhat Hanh again in a, a book called How to Fight. He says, interbeing is the understanding that nothing exists separately from anything else. We are all interconnected. By taking care of another person, you take care of yourself. By taking care of yourself, you take care of the other person. Happiness and safety are not individual matters. If you suffer, he says, I suffer. If you are not safe, I am not safe. There is no way for me to be truly happy if you are suffering. If you can smile, I can smile too. The understanding of interbeing is very important. It helps us to remove the illusion of loneliness, to transform the anger that comes from the feeling of separation. And this for me has been a huge part of my own personal practice, you know, this feeling of, of anger and isolation, the feeling that comes from being separate. Just this morning, I woke up feeling a lot of anxiety, just feeling, ah, zzz, that's kind of buzzing anxiety. And I always, I know now, I, I, it's taken me a long time to recognize this. I know now that when I'm feeling anxiety that there's fear. There's actually some kind of fear there that's just buzzing away. And I've gotten a little bit better at turning toward the fear to learn how to relax and let it be present, to let that kind of unpleasant vibratory anxiety just kind of do its thing. And as I've, I've done that in the last couple of days, I've noticed all of this old pain and hurt, like really old stuff, you know, feeling separate, a feeling neglected, a feeling isolated, uh, feeling alone. And I mean, I know we all have these experiences, but for some of us, we have more or less uh, experiences, especially early on in life, when it really kind of creates deep grooves in our body and mind, our brain. It becomes challenging, even if you, as you get older and you go on meditation retreats and do therapy and have a partner and a child. I mean, doing all the things, right? All the things one is supposed to do to become an integrated and healthy, freely functioning self. And still, and yet, there here is all of this pain, all of this shame, you know, all of this guilt for how I've acted out these feelings of isolation, anger, have perpetuated them. This morning I was sitting here and I was thinking about, just these images were popping in my mind. I was thinking about this bully, this boy named Kenny, who used to ride on my elementary school bus. He was, he was like in fifth grade, I think I was maybe second grade or something. And he was maybe twice my size, you know, big kid. And he just started picking on me, you know, and he just started getting more and more ruthless. He started eventually hitting me, punching me, and I'd come home and I'd just be like, bruises, you know, everywhere on my body. The bus driver didn't do anything, you know. Uh, teachers maybe didn't do anything, didn't know. I think my mom told them, nothing really happened, you know. This was in the 80s. <laughs> so it's like before bullying was even like really recognized as a problem in some sense. And I just had this feeling, because I've done a lot of work on this front, 
I had this feeling of just like wanting to reach out to him you know, and say, look, I know this wasn't your fault. Like, I know that. Like, and it's not your fault. Like, I wanted to tell him it's not your fault. You were almost certainly being abused. Like, I imagine he was probably being physically abused or, you know, like something happening in his home. And he was just, he was perpetuating it. You know, young kid, he didn't know what he was doing. And it hit me suddenly, like, this thing that I'm, this loving kindness and this care that I have for Kenny, it's actually really directed toward myself, you know, because I also am that bully. You know, I also took my pain out on other people. I also called kids' names and torment. I didn't, you know, punch them and bruise them, but like I did things that were probably felt in a similar way. And this is what we do when we're out of touch uh, with ourselves and each other. And it's sad, but Charles Eisenstein says in the, the more beautiful world our hearts know is possible. He says, each experience of love nudges us toward the story of interbeing because it only fits into that story and defies the logic of separation. Each experience of love nudges us toward the story of interbeing because it only fits into that story and it defies the logic of separation. For me, separation is what happens when I lose touch with that sense of interbeing, of being aware of myself and others. And I mentioned in, the so in a social meditation session that I've, this is something I've learned from doing social practices that I didn't re recognize prior, is that there are these two main ways that people lose themselves, um, or that we, they, we lose touch with interbeing, I should say. One is that some of us have more of a tendency to lose ourselves and others, right? We will abandon ourselves and we'll spend most of our attention trying to kind of be aware of and attend to the needs and feelings of others. And this is largely probably a protection mechanism, a way of protecting the self. You know, because I can be aware of what's going on with others. I can, I can stay relevant, needed, loved, wanted. It's not a bad thing. It's, it makes sense that in, in a situation that is difficult and dehumanizing, in some sense, that we would learn these coping strategies. And then the other way, which is the kind of the opposite, is that we can lose others in ourselves. We can collapse in on ourselves. We can lose touch with and, and sort of forget that there are others. Self-absorption, right? And that sense of self-absorption, we're just by ourselves, that, that feels like separation, right? And, and I'd say the quality that I, I think of when I, I sense into what it's like to lose myself and others is of being lost, you know, of being not like knowing who I am, not having like a ballast, a ground in myself. So whether we're lost or separated, I think it is love that reconnects us. And not the sense of love, like loving only others, you know, it's like loving ourselves and others. 
recognizing, oh, this is not appropriate for me actually to take care of you right now. I need to take care of myself. You know, or it's not appropriate for me to just be over here doing my own thing while they're over there like taking care of the washing the dishes and doing all these things in the house. I'm just sitting there like playing a game on my phone. It's like, no, <laughs> I need to get up and help. <laughs> I'm okay. I can do that. And for me, social meditation, it's such a great way to practice this. It's such a great way to get in touch with our interbeing with others. Because in those practices, we have to be attuned to ourselves and others in some way. And we get a lot of training, a lot of practice in doing that. And, and it's a natural thing, right? If you notice your proclivity, like just right now, just getting in sense of like, okay, which am I? You've probably already done this, right? Which am I? Do I lose myself in others or do I lose others in myself? Well, once you can recognize your tendency, then we can actually start to more actively work with that when we notice it's happened. If you tend to get lost in others, right, the main move is to come back to yourself. It's to return, to collect your attention and return back to yourself. I mean, and that's the basic instructions, right, of most practices. Like, when you notice your tension's wandered, bring it back. So great, this works. And here's the piece that doesn't get emphasized, I think, enough in traditional solo meditation environments, and is particularly bad for those of us who tend to get absorbed in ourselves, which is that if we are separated from others, we have to open up to include them. We have to constantly, that's the main move. It's like, oh, I need to open up again and connect. Open up and connect. Open up and connect. Coming back, reconnecting, reopening. Not getting fixated on what's happening here, but recognizing, oh, there's a whole other world of selves out there. And they matter too. Of course. So here's some just practical suggestions, right? To come back into interbeing with others. Now the third perspective, now we have this interbeing, right? And the different selves that are connected within the larger circle. But this, our, we are also interbeing with nature itself or we're interbeing inside nature. Marcus Aurelius wrote, everything is fruit to me, which thy seasons bring, O nature. From thee are all things, in thee are all things, to thee all things return. From thee are all things. Nature gives us everything, virtually everything that we use, except for you know, some of the asteroids and things that came from elsewhere. And he says it's in thee are all things, right? This is why I say interbeing inside nature, because we are embedded in the earth. We are nothing without the earth with nothing without this little thin environment to breathe. Terry Tempest William, the uh, writer, educator, and conservationist, she wrote, the world is holy. We are holy. All life is holy. Daily prayers are delivered on the lips of breaking waves, the whisperings of grasses, the shimmering of leaves. When we're interbeing with nature, 
we're interconnected with these movements, these patterns, seasons, the beings, the flows, the changes all around us. This sometimes is hard to do in as modern and postmodern people, right? When we're in this world that is largely contained within buildings, where many of us spend a lot of our time, self-included, on screens, you know, enclosed in environments that just don't help us remember that in fact we already are embedded in nature. You know, here we have the air conditioning, which I so I'm grateful for. Thank you. <laughs> you know, I'm not saying this is a terrible and only bad thing. I'm just saying it's got costs. It's got costs. And of course, when we lose touch with our connection to nature, we suffer. We suffer. We feel isolated and alone in a, in a different way, a different kind of alienation, a different kind of disconnection, disconnection from the earth from our roots. The term radical is connected to, or has part of its etymology is connected to the word root, to root. So it's actually interesting what is radical is that which is rooting, which is connected to the earth. What's radical is to speak the truth that always is true. not to necessarily come up with some completely new thing that's disconnected or ungrounded from the natural world. Clearly, if we look at the modern era, we're living now in the ecological crisis, also known as the Anthropocene. You know, this period in Earth's history, one of only six major events where the ecosystems and ecological conditions of the Earth have changed this rapidly. They usually indicate a great dying off of species. The only reason we're here is because three billion years ago, there was a huge crisis where all these bacteria created all this oxygen. It was a huge crisis. You know, a lot of things died. And out of that, the conditions were created such that eventually, you know, we're here now, we can breathe. But we are now actively finding out what it's like for ourselves and each other to be able to begin to influence and change even the natural world we're involved in. And we did this completely unknowingly, right? Almost unconsciously. We started changing the environment long ago. As soon as humans entered the environment, we started changing it. And that's only accelerated. And now we're at this interesting precipice where we have to decide, we have to figure out, like, are we going to interview with nature? Or is nature going to reset and start anew you know with or without us that's the whole thing we're inside nature we're playing nature's game not the other way around although sometimes maybe it seems that way i've taken to gardening in the last five years this has been my practice for reconnecting with and interbeing with inside of nature um, it's the practice that's gotten me outside, connected more with the natural environment. And it's a practice that's gotten me in touch with the rhythms, the seasons. For the first time in my life, I can go into a garden, I can recognize most all of the vegetables just by looking at the leaves, 
you know, that was something I, I never knew how to do. Even though I grew up in a beautiful environment with a family of gardeners, I was just like, ugh, you know, that's, my, that's what my family and my grandparents do. That's not cool. I came to my grandfather, actually, um, what this was, uh, yeah, it was about three years ago. And I, I, or four years ago, I came to him and I said, I want to start gardening. And he's like, what? Um, he's almost 90 now and still is actively gardening. And he said, okay, go out in the back. I'll get you a plot, you know, a piece of the land and you can, and you can start gardening there and, and make it really small and, you know, do it and, and see what happens. And I did. And I, it was hard, I'll, I'll be honest, because I lived like 30 minutes away. So I'd have to drive out, you know, once or twice a week, which is nice. Got to visit with the grandparents. Um, but it's really hard to keep up a garden in the middle of summer only once or twice a week and it's on the ground because the weeds just devoured it, right? And I learned a lot and it was great. And one day I came up to him and I said, Pops, this is great. I got my first cucumber, you know, this is so awesome. And he said, you remind me of me when I was six. <laughs> He's Palestinian, so he thought this is the accent I'm using here. And when he grew up, he grew up in, in you know, modern day Israel, Palestine then. And he, um, you know, he was basically lived in a subsistence farming um, community. Uh, and they also went and uh, foraged, you know, in the, in, the, in the forest to get food. You know, they had to go out and get food in the winter because they ran out. So he lived in a really very simple and basic way. Um, and I thought, of course, this, on the one hand, this sounds like an insult, right? You remind me of me when I was six, because I'm 36 at the time. <laughs> but it was really a statement of pride coming from him. He was really proud of me. And it was, it was quite sweet. You know, it was quite sweet to, I was laughing on the one hand, because it's, of course, like, it took me 36 years to realize the importance of what was obvious to him when he was six. You know, that was when he started his first garden. But you know what? I've got some time. We've got some time, you know, to retrieve the wisdom of the past, to bring it back in, to integrate it. So to me, this is one of the most beautiful ways of practicing interbeing inside nature. And there are many others, you know, hiking, uh, or finding ways in your home where you can be more connected to nature. We've got this beautiful uh, screened-in back porch, which is also known as Emily's office. And unless it's like extremely hot or extremely cold, she's most of the time out there working, doing things. And it's beautiful, like hearing the, you know, the crickets. Occasionally we see a black bear, you know, and it's beautiful. It's just like, wow, I remember, you know, my connection with the world. If you live in the city, which I know many of you do, right? It's a little more challenging. You know, I live out in rural North Carolina, so it's not that hard, but we do. We have to find ways still to connect with nature, to connect, to find ways to put ourselves in that position where we can learn and listen. And I think if we do that, I have hope that actually if we do that, that we're being, in a sense being called to do that. We're being called to reconnect. And if we can, I don't see why we can't adapt to this, these new conditions. That's what we do. That's what life does. And now I want to try to um, just, in a sense, integrate all of this. How, how do these things relate? Could we bring them together into what I would call the great network of interbeing? Because interbeing or interdependence, what I've found is that it's often 
portrayed as a web, right? The web of interdependence. Um, we talk about Indra's net, or uh, we talk about webs of connection, and that's beautiful because it gets at the way that there is this sort of connectivity between things. But to me, this is a problematic visual. Because why? Because it's flat. Everything is the same. And there's an assumption that it all just connects in the same way, and that everything has the equal, an equal amount of influence over everything else. But that's not how life works. We don't have an equal influence over the earth, as the earth has on us. <laughs> we have to acknowledge when we're smaller or we're embedded within something larger uh, in order to be in right relationship to that thing. Thinking about it on a larger scale, you know, this larger circle of the earth is itself then a connective node in a larger network we could call the solar system, right? Where one planet within a larger system of planets and that at the center is the sun, right? Everything doesn't influence everything else equally. Every planet doesn't have the same mass. We are all moving around the sun. We now know this, right? We didn't, humans didn't used to know this. We, for the longest time, we thought the earth was the center. And then we realized, no, there's something bigger, the sun. And now we know, of course, there's many, many times bigger scales even than that. You can continue going out into this larger, open, what I would call network. Christopher Vitali, who's a philosopher, wrote a book called Networkologies. And in it, he says, at its simplest, a network is any whole composed of parts distinguished from a background. Imagine the chalkboard is the background, right? And composed of other parts and holes layered into each other at multiple levels of scale. He goes on to say in the same book that perhaps mind is simply what it feels like to be a network of this complexity from the inside. He proposes this beautiful and I think elegant uh, solution to the mind-body problem. You know, this thought that the mind and body are separate. Here again, he goes on, for if the potential for mind is simply the result of the networking of neurons, essentially living wires, and these are themselves the result of the dynamic networking of matter and energy, which are themselves networks of quantum events, then this means that the potential for human experience and all that we've ever felt or even dreamed lies not in what things are, but in how they are intertwined, how they're connected, how they interbe. We are because everything is. To be is to interbe. This is what he's saying. There's another way of talking about this that I also like. There's another word that I want to surface here, and that is the word holon. H-O-L-O-N. Holon. A holon, from the Greek holos, which means whole, and on, which means part. 
is something that is simultaneously a whole in and of itself, as well as a part of a larger whole. So we ourselves, right, from this point of view, we could say we're holons. We are both whole ourselves and we are part of a larger wholeness. And within us is the same thing, the same pattern at another scale. It's a fractal. Okay? At every scale, it's the same thing. Have you ever seen the Mandelbrot set? That beautiful mathematical visualization where you zoom in, it's just like the same thing. You keep seeing it. That like, looks like kind of like a, like a Mickey Mouse or tick thing, and you just keep zooming in. And it's kind of like, it's trippy. You're sitting there and you're just like, whoa. Uh, you know, could just sit there and watch a Mandelbrot set for 30 minutes. That'd be a pretty weird meditation, right? But that's how it is. That's how life is. It's, like this, it's this weird thing where you can zoom out and zoom in, and every scale, the same patterns repeat themselves. They look the same. They're self-similar. And I found it interesting that the word holon and holy share the same linguistic root from the Greek holos, wholeness, wholeness. Uh, one of my first mentors, another philosopher named Ken Wilber, he says, a natural hierarchy, a natural hierarchy is simply an order of increasing wholeness, such as particles to atoms, to cells, to organisms, or letters, to words, to sentences, to paragraphs. The whole of one level becomes part of the whole of the next. In other words, natural hierarchies are composed of holons, or more accurately, we could call these holarchies. You know, it's like the nested dolls all the way down and up. And so it doesn't really make sense to think of these as like some kind of like hierarchy in the way we normally think of, right? Ken would call these dominator hierarchies. And these are unnatural hierarchies. These are ones that humans impose on each other, on themselves, and on nature. They have this idea of like, oh, this is how everything relates, and this is higher than this, and we've got this caste system, or we've got this race system, or these people are down here. You know, this is what humans do, and this is actually awful. This is not what I'm talking about. What I'm talking about is what Ken would call an actualization hierarchy. These natural hierarchies that are found in nature, natural human development, humans at babies, we learn how to like sit up, we learn how to crawl, we learn how to walk. Like this is a natural development. And why is this important? Why is it important to talk about this? Why am I bringing this up even? Because I think it helps make us more effective and more pragmatic in terms of how we work with our interbeingness at every scale, at every level. Because if we don't understand the structure and nature of interbeing, and we try to influence things, we try to change things, we try to do something, if we're not careful, we will become the one who's imposing our dominator hierarchies on the world. We'll start to impose our ideas on the world instead of being in harmony with how the world actually seems to be functioning. Chagyam Trungpa, the Tibetan Buddhist teacher, he said, living in accordance with natural hierarchy is not a matter of following a series of rigid rules or structuring your days with lifeless commandments or codes of conduct. That's the dominator hierarchies. The world has order and power and richness that can teach you how to conduct your life artfully, 
with kindness to others and care for yourself. So the idea here is when we're in relationship to this natural order of interbeing, that the universe itself is demonstrating to us if we just look and see how it is. You know, we just take that telescope and we look and see, oh, no, we're not the center. We're moving around this thing. Okay, now we can start to reconceive of how we do things, how we think about things, how we act, what's possible. We can start to see the earth. It's called the overview effect. And we can actually see the earth when we had that first experience in the 70s of astronauts going out and they caught this image of the earth. Stuart Brand, who was an important technologist at the time, he said it's really important that we have an image of the earth that's sent back so that we can see ourselves, so that we can see the actual order of things at a new level, in a, in a broader way, in a bigger way. And that gave birth to the environmental movement, that recognition of ourselves as being all part of this, what from that perspective is actually a, a little tiny, 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 tiny little bit of atmosphere that's like protecting us, you know, and this little bit of like, uh, whatever, electromagnetic field that's protecting us from the sun's um, radiation. We can, if we open to the beautiful and exquisite structure of reality, and we begin to interbe with it at a deeper level or in deeper ways, then I think we, we end up finding ourselves taking our place in this great network of interbeing. We become part, and we are whole, both. After nearly a year in private beta, the Buddhist Geeks Network is now open for any independent practitioners who want to engage in interdependent practice. You can find out more about the Buddhist Geeks Network by visiting BuddhistGeeks.network. And if you'd like to join the community and join us in regular social meditation practice or other events that we host there in the network, all freely offered, you're very welcome to do so, again, by visiting BuddhistGeeks.network. Love to see you there.